I invite you to do two things this morning. Number one, first and most importantly, to take your Bible and open to the passage that was read earlier, Revelation 21. If you want to use the blue Bible that's in the back of the seat in front of you, it should be, Lord willing, on page 1041. We'll be looking again at Revelation 21, 1 through 5. The second thing I'd invite you to do is take your bulletin and turn to the sermon outline, and if you keep that open with your Bible, you'll be able to follow more easily this morning. I want to thank you for the privilege of breaking open again the Word of God for the Moody Church today. I sense, I sense the privilege this is, and also the awesome responsibility. Now, if you're conscious this morning, you are probably aware that this afternoon, if the Lord wills it, the San Francisco 49ers (laughs) and the Kansas City Chiefs will play the Super Bowl. To be specific, they will play Super Bowl L-I-V. For those who don't know Roman numerals, that's Super Bowl 54. Back before Super Bowl VI in January of 1972, a reporter put a microphone in the face of the troubled Dallas Cowboys running back, Dwayne Thomas, and asked him, Dwayne, what does it feel like to play in the ultimate game? And Dwayne Thomas, I would submit to you with very substantial perspective, answered, if this is the ultimate game, why are they going to play it again next year? (laughs) The Super Bowl is not ultimate. What the pastors of this church have been speaking about the past four weeks, that is ultimate. Ultimate truth, the ultimate glory of God revealed to us in what the pastoral staff has called the story of salvation. Let's review very quickly. Every religion, every comprehensive worldview must answer four fundamental questions. Number one, how did the universe get here? Michael Best answered that three weeks ago. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Question number two, every religion must answer, what has gone wrong with the universe? That there is natural evil, earthquakes, tsunamis, accidents, and so forth. And there is moral evil, our sin and the destructive consequences it wreaks in all of our lives. The answer that Bill Burchie gave two weeks ago as he preached through Genesis 3, the fall of man and the entry of our sin into the world. Question number three, every religion must answer, how does what went wrong 
get made right. And last week, Larry McCarthy answered the question with the great Christian response, God's work of redemption in and through the person of the God-man, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we come today to the fourth and final question in the story of salvation, the question every worldview must answer, namely, how is it all going to come to an end? The Christian answer in a word is restoration. And we're going to see from Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5, that God will carry out three enormous, comprehensive, God-glorifying works of revelation, works of restoration at the end of the age. Now let's set the context for the passage. By the time we read Revelation 21, Jesus has already returned, and the last judgment has taken place. Those who oppose Christ have been consigned to a place the Scriptures call the lake of fire or hell forever. But now those who by the grace of God have trusted in Jesus for their salvation are ready to enter into what theologians call the eternal state after the final judgment where God for our sakes restores all things. Now, probably there are 10,000 questions that you and I have concerning this passage and concerning the eternal state. I have time to address only one of them this morning, but it's an obvious one. How does this passage and its description of the eternal state relate to heaven where God lives and the saints who have gone on to glory to be with them, how does it relate to heaven as it exists now? And the far too short and far too superficial answer I'll give is this. Point number one of the outline relates mainly to the eternal state. However, points two and three of the outline for this morning relate to heaven as it exists now essentially as much as they will to the eternal state. So, with that introduction, let's dive right in. Three ways that this passage teaches that in the eternal state, God is going to fundamentally restore His creation and much more. The first work of restoration we see is that God will restore the fullness of what He intended the created order to be from the beginning. Now, what I mean is that God will lift natural evil, that is, earthquakes and tsunamis and accidents, natural disasters, and God will also lift and remove from His creation the sin that is the cause of those natural disasters and accidents. Think about the natural evil that you and I have seen just in the month that ended two days ago. Just in January 2020, there were earthquakes in Puerto Rico, volcanoes in the Philippines, fires engulfing Australia, locust plagues in East Africa, 
the coronavirus, coronavirus, of course, in China and far beyond, and then the helicopter accident that tragically killed nine last Sunday, including the basketball superstar, Kobe Bryant. Why does natural evil exist? Why does the created order not work the way that God intended in the beginning for it to work? The answer that Genesis 3 gives, that Romans 8 gives, and many other passage of script, passages of Scripture gives, is it's our sin. It's not that there's always a one-to-one -one connection between some natural disaster and some accident and some particular sin, but the reason that there are natural disasters and the reason that there are accidents is that our sin has corrupted the creation that before the entry of our sin into the world, remember, God stepped back, looked at all that He had made, saw it reflecting His glory perfectly back to Him, and declared, it is very good. Our sin has corrupted that creation so that it does not work as God intended. There are natural disasters and there are accidents. But as C.S. Lewis once wrote, the leaves are rustling. The leaves are rustling with the news that it will not always be so, but that rather God one day will lift the curse of our sin and there will be no more natural disaster and no more accidents. How do we see that truth in this passage? Look again with me at verse 1. John writes of his vision, Then I saw a new heaven, and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Again in verse 5, God declares, Behold, I am making all things new. And the particular adjective that's translated new in verse 1 and again in verse 5 means qualitatively new not just new in time, but qualitatively new, something that's different. You might ask in verse 1, why is there no sea in the eternal state? What a curious thing for God to do, take away the sea. But all you have to do is understand that in the book of Revelation, the sea is always associated with evil. For example, the Antichrist in chapter 13 of Revelation verse 1 is described as what? The beast who comes from the sea. So when in verse 1 we read that the sea is no more, it means that God has removed evil from his creation and has restored it 
to its Eden-like existence. If we need confirmation, it's in verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immemorial, immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Which is not to say that in heaven, in the eternal state, there will not be people who sinned on earth. Not at all. It's simply to say that in that eternal state, in heaven, there is no sin. You and I, when we get to heaven, will not be able to sin. And when God brings in the new heavens and the new earth, it will be Eden restored to us. It will be what the Apostle Paul writes about in Romans 8, verses 20 to 21, when he says, the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. But when God cursed creation, he did so, listen to the next words, in hope. What hope? That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay. John is describing in Revelation 21 the day when God Almighty will set creation free from its bondage to decay. It's interesting, isn't it, that it took science 1,800 years to discover what the Apostle Paul wrote about in Romans chapter 8. It wasn't until 1850 that a German scientist published the second law of thermodynamics. You remember that. Everything tends toward entropy. That is, everything tends toward decay in the created order. That's simply the scientific confirmation that our sin causes this world to decay. This is a decaying universe. There are natural disasters. There are accidents because it is a sinful place. But Revelation 21 tells us gloriously it will not always be so. If by the grace of God you're trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation today, the day is coming in the new heaven and the new earth that John describes in this passage when any natural scene that you see in that place will surpass 10 million times over the most beautiful natural scene that you've ever witnessed in this world. When any food that you taste in the new heaven and the new earth will make the best food that you've ever eaten on planet earth taste like school cafeteria food, <laughs> by contrast. God will restore what creation was intended to be. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we will get Eden back. But it will be even better than it was originally. Because the original Eden had the capacity to be lost. 
the new heaven and the new earth will be ours forever and ever. No sin, no consequences of sin in the natural order. And then second, not only will God in this final and supreme act of restoration restore the created order to the fullness of what he intended it to be from the beginning. But he will restore you and me, the children of God, to what he intended us to be from the beginning as well. Physically, with resurrection bodies that will never decay and never wear out. Emotionally, and spiritually, all moral evil, our sin and its destructive consequences will be removed from the created order in the new heaven and the new earth. Where do we see that truth in this passage? Look at verse 2. And I saw, as John continues his description of his vision, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, as you read on, I think there's more than one fulfillment, if you will, of this vision. But surely one of the fulfillments is the familiar image of the people of God as God's wife in the Old Testament or in the New Testament as the bride of Christ. And do you remember the precious words of Ephesians 5.27 concerning how Jesus Christ will present his bride to himself on this day when he inaugurates the new heavens and the new earth. earth. Listen to the words again. Ephesians 5:27. Christ will present us, his people, as a bride to himself, quote, in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. God in the eternal state, in the new heaven and the new earth, just as he will do when we get to heaven, will remove all evil from our hearts. No sin, none of the pain or destructive consequences associated with sin. And there will be at least two results of God's removal of all moral evil, of all sin and its consequences. One is described in verse 4 of our passage. Isn't it almost too sweet to read the words? Look at them. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 calls death our last enemy. It will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, 
nor pain, physical or emotional, anymore. Why? Because the former things, the things that pertain to the first heaven and the first earth, those have passed away with the new heaven and the new earth. In heaven, no death, no aging, no coronavirus, no sickness, no pain, no suffering, no disabilities. Remember a friend named Suzette who struggles with some intellectual disabilities, rather serious ones, saying one time, Pastor Steve, I can't wait to get to heaven. Why, Suzette? Because, Pastor Steve, I'll be normal there. All disability, all blemishes, all glasses, All of it, gone. God will restore us physically, emotionally, spiritually. I was a little surprised this week to read that statistically with my last birthday, and I won't tell you which one that was, but statistically, apparently, I moved from the category middle-aged to old-age. Now, I know you look at me and say, it's impossible. <laughs> but it's true. And I feel the decay of the body. The memory does not work as sharply as it used to. The feet hurt a lot more than they used to. But that decay, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5, only makes me long for this day when God will restore us emotionally, physically, spiritually, because there won't be any sin. And it's not just that God will remove all the pain and the suffering, but think of what will replace it. Jonathan Edwards, the great early American pastor, preached a wonderful sermon titled, Heaven, a World of Love. Have you ever thought about it? Because there is no sin in heaven, there is no sin that will block perfect love between you and me or between you and any other Christian. That Christian who you thought impossibly difficult to get along with on earth, you will love perfectly in heaven. But what's even more wonderful? No sin, no sin will impede our capacity to love the Lord our God with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind and all our strength. And no sin will impede our capacity to experience God's abounding, steadfast love in Jesus Christ for us either. Heaven, a world of love. 
because God will restore us to what he intended us to be from the beginning. Now, the restoration of creation and the restoration of us is glorious. But it's not the most wonderful thing about heaven. Not even close. The greatest work of restoration that God will carry out will be his restoration of the fullness of his relationship with us, his people. And to paraphrase Tevye in that wonderful scene in the movie Fiddler on the Roof, that will be the sweetest thing of all. Look how our passage describes it in verse 3. And I heard a loud voice, probably the voice of God himself, from the throne saying, Behold the dwelling place. Literally the word is the tabernacle of God. Behold the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. As if it's almost too good to be true, John has to repeat it in verse 7. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. In Eden, before their sin, God would come down in the cool of the day and would walk in the garden with Adam and Eve. Can you imagine in the eternal state God in all his beauty, God in all his spiritual excellence, coming to you and said, would you take my hand? I want to take a walk with you through this garden. We get Eden back not just in the physical sense. We get Eden back in the immediate presence of God. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, now we see God dimly, but then we shall see face to face. And seeing God and delighting in God and having our hearts fully satisfied in God, that's what he created us for. He created us for the highest good in the universe that we might know him and see his glory and his beauty and our souls might eternally find their rest and their joy forever in him. 
Haven't the greatest saints always known that that was the case? Didn't David say in Psalm 16:11 to the Lord, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, God, are pleasures forevermore. Didn't the apostle Paul write in Philippians 3, 8, I count everything as loss compared to because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Didn't St. Augustine in his autobiography declare right at the beginning, God, you have made us for yourself and our souls are restless until they find their rest in you. I was listening this morning on the radio to the strains of Johann Sebastian Bach's Jesu joy of man's desiring. And I said, yes, Jesus, you are the joy of my desiring. Is Jesus the joy of your desiring? If he's not, he will be in the eternal state. He will be everything. He will be everything that you have ever desired, everything of which the highest delights and pleasures of this world are only the vaguest shadow. This morning when we sang, crown him with many crowns, did your heart go up to heaven and did you see Jesus enthroned and say, yes, Jesus, you are worthy to be crowned with many crowns because you are the King of kings and you're the Lord of lords and you have redeemed me with your blood on the cross. And Jesus, I declare your greatness and I enter into the delight of knowing and experiencing your presence. Last week when Larry McCarthy preached with all his heart about the redemption and placarded Jesus before us, crucified on the cross for the sake of sinners and risen again from the dead to bring salvation to repentant sinners. Wasn't your heart taken up to the throne of God? And didn't you say as we sang again this morning, worthy is the Lamb, worthy is the Lamb to receive all glory and all honor and all power and all authority and all dominion over all things forever and ever and ever. I love the statement in Randy Alcorn's book called Heaven. With the Lord we love and the friends we cherish, he writes about heaven, will embark together on the ultimate adventure in a spectacular new universe awaiting our exploration and dominion. And most importantly, Jesus will be at the center of all things and joy will be the air we breathe. And right when we think it doesn't get any better than this, it will. And it will get better every second for 10 trillion times 10 trillion years. I teach 
in a local Christian private school. And in my Bible classes, my favorite Bible trivia question to ask is, what is the name of heaven? Do you know that heaven has a name? What would be your answer? The answer is in Ezekiel 48:35. It's actually the very last verse of the book of Ezekiel. And the name of the city, the city of God or heaven, shall be the Lord is there. When you and I, if by God's grace we're trusting in Jesus, get to heaven, it will be great that you're there. It will be great that I'm there. It will be great that Christians we've loved on earth who have gone before us, it will be great that they're there. But the supreme reality of heaven, the reason it has that name, is the Lord is there. And we will see him, and our hearts will be made most fully glad in him forever and ever. As we close, let me offer a couple of brief applications to what we've seen in Revelation 21. First, if you're a Christian, would you ask God to help you make this hope for heaven and for the eternal state a treasure to your soul? Would you not ask God, God, cause this vision of John in Revelation 21 to be sweeter and sweeter to me? John Newton the author of the hymn Amazing Grace, once preached using this illustration. He said, suppose a man was going to New York to take possession of a large inheritance and his carriage should break down a mile before he got to the city, which obliged him to walk the rest of the way. What a fool we should think him if we saw him wringing his hands and blubbering out all the remaining mile. My carriage is broken. My carriage is broken. Why worry about the carriage when you've got this wonderful inheritance you're about to receive? May God make it sweeter and sweeter and a greater and greater treasure to our souls. And then, Christian, as it becomes a greater treasure, as God grows the sense of the value of your inheritance in heaven in your soul, would you also ask God, as he grows that sense, to give you what we call gospel wakefulness, a spiritual alertness in this world? Why do I say that? Because... The Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 13 through 14 connects the Christian's expectation of the new heaven and the new earth with how the Christian lives in this world, namely in gospel wakefulness. Peter writes, according to God's promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by God without spot or blemish at peace. Ask God as you wait to receive your inheritance to give you a gospel 
wakefulness. And then finally, to those of you who are gathered in this room or watching this morning and who know in your soul, I do not know savingly the Lord Jesus Christ. For you, my purpose this morning in all candor has been to make you jealous. It has been to set forth for you the inheritance of the Christian in heaven and in the eternal state so that as God's grace works in your soul, you would say to yourself, I must have that inheritance, that certain hope for my own. How can I have that certain hope, Pastor Steve? I'm glad you asked. Number one, admit the truth that you are a sinner who has broken God's moral law and that you are therefore justly under his eternal condemnation for your sins. But number two, understand that God himself came on a rescue mission for sinners to earth. In the person of Jesus Christ, the God-man, who lived the life without sin we cannot live, and who died on the cross to pay the penalty for the sins of sinners. And that Jesus Christ did not remain dead, but on the third day rose again from the dead. Why? So that he is alive now to give grace to all who would receive it from his hand. Grace to turn from their sins and to turn to Jesus. Putting your trust in Jesus Christ alone to save you from sin and to give you eternal life. If you're here today and you know that you do not know Christ savingly, would you not love your own soul enough to receive his grace, repent from your sins, and receive the salvation he won for sinners. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, it is surely your providence that this Sunday, this Lord's Day, is also appointed for the service of the Lord's Supper. Because as your people gather for the Lord's Supper, among many other things, we eat and drink in your presence. And what is one of the things that we will do in heaven and the eternal state? We will eat and we will drink forever, God, in your presence. So would you give to those who are your children during these moments just a taste, God, just a taste of the eternity that awaits us. And God, we pray that you would send out your saving grace right now as well in this room and to those watching on video. 
God, we ask straightforwardly, would you redeem lost sinners through the power of your word, by your grace, and for the glory of your name? And God, would you give us, your people also, an increasing relish, an increased treasuring of the hope we have for heaven, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.